Good afternoon. I'm Brandon Busty, president of University Partners and global head of Learn, Work, Innovation at Kaplan. And I'm delighted to welcome you to my first ever LinkedIn Live broadcast as part of a new series called Bold Leaders in Learning. And I'm delighted to have a good friend as my first guest, John Kaplan, who's the founder of Corvantes Consulting and the former chief learning officer of Discover Financial Services. I was running all of learning at that time for Discover, and a big part of my organization was running the call center training programs. And so call center pr training programs, they have um, they require an enormous number of trainers because the way you run them is when you onboard new employees and you're always onboarding, you actually have to have on a face-to-face -face experience for people as they're getting acclimated to the, comp the company. And so most of the trainers that you have are people who, you know, uh, were, were call center agents for two or three years and then became trainers. And so they're relatively young in their careers. Uh, demographically, they, they're very representative of the, the population that you hire uh, for your call centers. And really very few of them had college degrees. And so we had probably in my organization reporting up to me, we had, you know, 75 or 100 trainers, all, all of whom were you know, sort of in between about 25 and 35, and very few of them had college degrees. And they were all participating in the tuition reimbursement program. And so I had heard all stories about, about, about it. First of all, I'd heard this is a wonderful program. Gosh, it is so great that Discover is helping fund my college, uh, my college degree attainment. And uh, number two, it's really a pain to participate in this program because I have to fund it out, out, outright, which, you know, yeah. cost me, um, you know, it can cost me a few thousand dollars just to get tied up in, in, in tuition while I'm waiting for a reimbursement. Um, and, you know, just to constantly have to ma managing this paperwork. And so, um, so that's why I was really excited to, to take over the program. And it just so happens that about the same time, I was uh, I was invited to partic participate in the Obama administration's Upscale America initiative, which was um, uh, an effort by the Department of Labor, the Department of Education, and I believe Commerce. They were partnering together to try to encourage companies to invest more in their frontline workers. And they invited me and a couple um, and a bunch of, of you know similarly positioned leaders in education to the White House to talk about this. And I got to meet some really great people, and I got to—I started building an understanding of what a great tuition um, education, um, you know, uh, what what a what a really good uh, education program would look like. And so that's sort of how it all started for me. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like uh, around that same time frame is when uh, I, I believe the the Starbucks, you know, Howard Schultz, and Michael Crow led. Uh, partnership between Starbucks and ASU crept up, and I, I know it, it, that was a fairly influential uh, moment as well. And uh, just be interesting, to, you know, you had made the comment to me in a, in a conversation we had earlier about the importance of executive leadership behind this, right? And really, uh, you know, kind of making sure that employees uh, understand and appreciate the opportunities being provided. It's one thing to kind of have tuition reimbursement on the back shelf. That, that might be accessible and you know in a, in a in a less direct way it's another thing to be out there promoting it and uh, j just curious uh, your your uh, observations that you took away from the the Starbucks uh, initiative that Howard Schultz was behind yeah I mean I think it's fair to say that uh, um, if Howard Schultz hadn't done what he 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 did with Michael Crow and the Starbucks pro program none of us would be here talking about this right now I mean that was really a seminal program and I remember seeing him interviewed. 
uh, on a news program, and it, it was probably a 10 or 15 minute clip where he talked about how Starbucks was investing in their employees so that their employees could could live to their you know highest um, ambitions. And it involved not staying at Starbucks and being a barista for the rest of their lives, but using that time to develop a set of skills and go back to school and prepare themselves for other other occupations in the world. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, when you listen to chief executives talk about, you know, about their companies, typically they talk about how they focus on customers. They talk, they spend a lot of time talking about shareholder, you know, the 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 interests of shareholders. Um, they oftentimes they talk about how the, how how great their employees are and how their employees are wonderful in meeting customer needs. Rarely do they talk about the needs of their employees and how they're meeting the needs of their employees. And I just found it. I found it so inspiring that you had a chief executive who was taking his time to to stump for this program that he had he had built with uh, Michael Crow and at, at ASU and um, and that that I think changed the way people think about education about and about about corporate responsibility towards frontline employees. Yeah, it, no doubt about it. And and uh, you know, look, you, you've obviously kind of described the the lead up to this. You know, you getting uh, the opportunity to to kind of oversee the tuition uh, reimbursement program and understanding the nuances of what was and wasn't working. Opportunity to interact with people as part of the White House Council and really understand that to see this seminal leadership uh, being driven by that uh, opportunity between ASU and Starbucks. And so. Take me through what happened in terms of making the sale to Discover, right? You're, you're an executive at Discover, but you've got to sell this to the CFO, to the CEO. They presumably have to sell it to a board of directors, right? So how, how do you get a company to make the investment, right? Uh, and, and to look at this not just as a, as a nice benefit, but something that has a real ROI behind it. Yeah, so I think I, it became immediately clear to me that I needed... Um, that I needed three things, and I already had one of them. You know, uh, the the first thing I needed was I needed a point of view on what was a a really distinguishing uh, education assistance program. I mean, there are a lot of details in these programs, and really understanding what is going to promote the interest of the 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 company as well as the interest of the employee. I need to to really understand that. Second thing I needed to have is I need to have some data on you know the the financial benefits of of running one of these programs i think i think both for employees and for and for uh, the and share, shareholders mm-hmm. the third thing i needed is i mean i need you need a generally supportive c suite and one thing i would say is one of the reasons why i came to discover is i felt that the the executives at discover were 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 really we're really behind the interest of employees and especially our call center employees. And, you know, Discover had a long history of supporting call center workers. They never outsourced, they never offshored, they, they ran all call centers in the United States, um, you know, and, they, and the, the way they did um, medical care, the way they did compensation, I always felt that like it was very, a very sort of pro-worker uh, company. And that's one of the reasons why I went there because I felt that, you know, my personal values were reflected in, in the company values. And so, you know, but but in terms of the first two, the first thing I did was um, I um, I called one of the people I met at um, at the White House, Jamie Fall, who is at the Aspen Institute, and he's yeah. deep into this. He he's running the Upscale America Initiative right now. Yeah. Um, I said, look, can you get me some conversations with some people who are really forward thinking on the subject? And so uh, I had meetings with Daimler Chrysler and JetBlue and Cigna and a bunch of others, and that sort of refined my understanding of what a good 
uh, education, education assistance program would look like. Uh, the second thing I did is I, I called uh, Haley Glover at the Lumina Foundation, um, mm-hmm. and after talking a bit, uh, she agreed to um, help run a, an ROI study at Discover to assess what are the what's the return on investment for investing in in education benefits. And what we found, and, and this was no small surprise, I think anyone who had any connection with our tuition reimbursement program knew that it had enormous benefits to the company. And what right. we found, we quantified it, that every dollar we spent on tuition reimbursement returned that dollar plus another dollar uh, forty-one in or dollar forty-four in um, offset costs and benefits just from talent management. So mm-hmm. we had um, uh, we had lower absenteeism, we had higher retention, we had higher promotions, and all that. That just and we didn't even really look at performance. Performance was a very difficult thing to quantify. We looked at it in. in in small areas, but you know, um, but even taking the the just the, um, the promotions and transfers and uh, absenteeism and retention, that's where we got a um, an ROI of 144 percent, and that was enough to go to the the C-suite and say, look, you know, um, as you know, I've been working on this program. We've 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 looked at the ROI. We believe that we are we are dramatically under investing in this program. So I'm going to ask two things for you. One today. And then I'm going to ask more of you in about six months. But the first thing I'm going to ask is let's waive the one-year, 10-year requirement. So right now, one of the biggest benefits is that it reduces attrition. And we have the highest attrition among our our first-year employees. Let's get them enrolled in college, and let's see if we can reduce the attrition attrition there, because that's what matters most in terms of our attrition costs. And You know, so the answer was yes. And the second question I asked is, you know, what I'm, I, I'd like is I'd like the opportunity to come back and, and really give you a proposal for what a distinguished education assistance program would really look like. And that eventually ended up as the um, Discover College commitment, which we, we rolled out in June of 2018. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that's one of those insights that I think is, uh, is really profound, right? You looked at that and said, geez, our turnover is highest in our employees, you know, zero to one year in. And yet, you know, this is a benefit that most companies didn't have available until some period of tenure, right? And so I just think that, you know, those are, those are examples, very powerful examples of where, uh, you know, you get to 144% return on investment. That, by the way, is a, is a very serious return. I mean, that's the kind of sales pitch you can make to a CFO and to a board and say, not only is this, you know, something that, that has a real strong uh, moral appeal, right, in terms of helping people, you know, achieve education and advance their careers, but this is good business sense for our organization. And, you know, I, I look, I, I, we can't have a conversation today with, without thinking about uh, what does this all mean in the, in the context of COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I'm sure you have too, is what, what happens with the education as a benefits movement now that we're in an environment where, for example, in the last four weeks alone, 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment. Uh, we're looking at a potential unemployment rate that could rival the Great Depression. Uh, you know, the highest that the U.S. has ever hit, 24.9 percent, is uh, is a potential here. So I've been thinking about it through a couple lenses. You know, there's the there's the there's the positive end of this. Um, I wrote a brief article in Forbes about education as a purpose, right? So not just thinking about it as a as a powerful benefit for employees while they're working, but as we think about all the people who are being laid off or furloughed as a result of this, to what degree can education be something that 
serves as their purpose during this time, right? To help as a reskilling or upskilling for new job opportunities when they uh, reemerge. And then on the flip side, I'm worried about, so I, I think that's a positive potential extension of these types of strategies. But on the other hand, you know, look, companies are cutting all kinds of things right now, including cutting staff and then laying folks off. So are these programs, are these education as a benefit programs going to survive something like COVID-19? Well, you know, the truth is I, I don't think we know, and they probably won't survive intact everywhere. But, but what I'll say is that there are, there are sort of four big reasons why you would run, run an education as a benefit program. Um, and the first is um, that it's really a talent acquisition and retention play, right? So can you acquire the right talent and can you get them, um, you know, can you retain them? Uh, the second one, and this is actually relates to your education as a purpose um, uh, uh, article that you wrote, which which I thought which I thought was great, um, but it's about engaging your talent. And so when you have your talent there, are they fully committed to your company? You know, are they are they uh, delivering discretionary work? You know, that's sort of the education as a purpose or education as 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 an engagement strategy is really critical. Um, the third is skill development. Are you are you um, are you you know taking all of your employees and just upgrading their skills? Are they are, can you make them better problem solvers, better critical thinkers? You know, um, you, you know, do do they synthesize information through, from from the reading that they do? You know, it, those are all things that every single employee employee needs. And then the fourth is. Um, is there the education as a builder of strategic talent? Like ev every single company realizes that there are, are some key roles yeah. that they really need just outsized talent in. And, you know, a lot of companies now are thinking around, um, around analytics, right? Um, yeah. Digital, digital uh, design, um, uh, software development. I mean, there, there are these keys, keys, uh, job, fo uh, job areas where they really want to just, just, you know, triple down and invest to make sure you have those key strategic skills. It's not like everyone, everyone in the company needs to have those, but you need a few people that are great at those. Right. Now, if you think about those, those four different areas, talent acquisition, retention, purpose or engagement, skill development, capability building, three of them are going to apply in a post COVID world. Right. It's just that talent acquisition and retention gets a little wonky when you have, you know, sort of when you, you have 22 million recently unemployed people, it's going to be easy to, um, to, to attract talent, at least, you know, at least, uh, you know, a talent for, for, uh, for opening roles. That is not going to be hard because we're, we have high unemployment and it's going to be easy to retain your workers because you have such a high unemployment rate. But, you know, those other things are going to apply for as long as, as you know, as for as long as we can see out into the future. And so I just wonder how many companies are starting to think as education, education assistance as, you know, building engagement, building, building talent, you know, building capabilities. And if they do think about that, they're not they're going to be very loath to cut these programs. Right. I mean, there's clearly uh, a lot to, to your point, several aspects of these, uh, let's just say education as part of your corporate strategy, right, that 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 are going to be that were valued before COVID-19 are going to be valued during and will be valued long after uh, whatever happens with the pandemic. Uh, certainly, there's going to be the, you know, the challenging aspect of, you know, near term budget decisions and certain things like that that are going to be inevitable. But um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something I've been thinking about in the context of, uh, uh, you know, to your point about strategic hiring, right. And, and, uh, what I've, what I've referred to as a GoPro early model, 
Um, and for those of uh, those of you who are just joining the feed, I'm in a conversation right now with with John Kaplan, who is the former CLO of Discover Financial Services, one of the pioneers of uh, outstanding education as benefit programs. And we're talking about whether these programs survive and in what form as a result of COVID-19. One of the thoughts I've had, John, is that, um, you know, as we think about the, the jobs that are still available, because there are still jobs still available in the U.S., we've obviously shed a lot of jobs. The question is going to be how many of those jobs come back where people can actually go back and get that same job with the same skill set versus there will be jobs available, but the distance between a person who doesn't have a job and that job is going to be some education or skill training deficit, right? Now, we had a skills gap in the United States uh, long before COVID-19 disruption. There were something like 7 million jobs open in the U.S. that were unfilled. And so that's something I wonder about, too, right, that we actually have a more pressing need for upskilling and reskilling because we, we may get the economy back in order in some form, but a lot of the jobs that people were hoping to return to may not be there. But there's other jobs they could get where, like I said, that deficit is that training. What are some other ideas? Obviously, companies can do a lot here. Higher ed can step in and play a role. But you've got some other thoughts, I think, on, uh, on, on, on how we might design a better talent development ecosystem in our country. Yeah, so I mean, I, I actually think that that one of the responses, the long-term responses to COVID, is going to be companies moving more aggressively to automating more of their more of their work, and that's I just think that when companies take a step back and look at their business recovery plan and realize we had to stop functions in every single part of our our company because we relied on people to do this work. You know, if we hadn't re- had to rely on people, if we had more, you know more automated functions, we could have kept more of the, co- the company up and running. And that's, I just think, is a reality that we are we are hurtling towards, um, you know, the fourth industrial revolution. And I think that future only becomes closer now. And so given that, I mean, we have to think about how all players can can work together to ensure that we're, we're transitioning people who have a set of skills that only work up through the third industrial revolution, but no longer work for the fourth industrial revolution to the right, to the right types of jobs that are actually going to create meaningful, uh, meaningful wages and, and, uh, you know, a meaningful standard of living for the long haul. And um, that is only going to take part, take place with a combination of government and, and, and universities and private sector employers. Yeah, I've actually been surprised that we haven't heard more details uh, about, you know, from a stimulus uh, package perspective about uh, new, really new dynamic opportunities to, to support companies or other organizations uh, to, to, to provide more upskilling and reskilling and, you know, have the, the equivalent of Pell Grants available for that or whatever it might be. There's a lot of different structures, but I, I, would, I would like to believe that those are things that are going to be part of the conversation going forward. And you know, we'll see what happens there. I'm curious, you know, going back to this uh, GoPro early idea, it's an idea I wrote about last year, uh, the idea of companies starting to hire students directly out of high school and uh, making part of the attractiveness of the job offer be that they'll pay for your college degree. It's certainly not a pathway for everybody, but there's a sizable percentage of the marketplace of prospective uh, college students, right, who are thinking about, geez, I can't afford the price tag of college, I still want a degree. If there's an employer who might support me in that way, I'd be very interested in going to work for that employer. You know, and now obviously I have to juggle working with uh, pursuing my degree, 
that's the thing that every non-traditional age working adult who's enrolled in college has been doing anyhow. So I wonder, like, do you see more promise or less promise for the growth of GoPro early opportunities as, as companies on one hand are thinking about talent development and students on the other hand are thinking about getting a college degree, having the work experience and making it more affordable on the other hand? Yeah, I actually see this accelerating. And, and the reason is sort of twofold. One is that we have this need to shift the curriculum towards something that is going to be very useful to, um, to, to work in, in, a, in a post-automation world. And universities have never been that fast around changing their curriculum. And so I think as, as the, the skill requirements change faster and faster, uh, private employers are the only ones who can sort of manage that. Um, that, and they're going to need to put put sort of buying pressure on universities. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is is that this only works um, in an environment where college is is unaffordable to um, you know to young people coming right. out of high school. And I think it actually gets more unaffordable. And the reason is is during recessions, people flood back into school because you know that's that's the that's the one thing they do. You can't find a job. You know, go to school for a little while. That's actually going to inflate the cost of tuition. And so I think you're actually going to have the, the dynamics that make that GoPro model uh, even more attractive because college is going to become in, in, uh, even more unaffordable. And the, the, the skills that we're, we're, we're developing out of those college programs are going to be less and less well connected to what business really needs. And so in that dynamic, I think an environment in which, um, which employers uh, hire people and then pay colleges to develop the right curriculum for their employees, I think becomes even more attractive. Yeah, it's just a shorter distance between the various goals that, that, the, that the consumers in this system have in mind, right? And most colleges and universities don't want to refer to students as consumers or employers as consumers, but they're consumers and customers of higher education. And I think I continue to believe higher education can play a huge role in this, but it's probably going to be in a different size and shape, right? Where, you know, this may not be students coming physically to a campus, but doing online degrees still something that individuals are eager to pursue and companies want to have in the form of their uh, the, the talent that they're hiring and developing. So I guess it's, you know, it, it also gets into non-degree programs, which we, you know, we haven't really touched upon. You know, the idea that higher ed, as long as it thinks about itself as delivering education more broadly and doesn't lock its mindset into only degree-based uh, offerings, right, can deliver a whole bunch of, you know, custom design training, uh, industry-specific training, and that might not be something that a lot of the liberal arts institutions want to think of themselves as doing. But, you know, if that's part of a continuing and professional ed school and offering that they have, there's a lot of opportunities in here for higher ed, even though it might feel to many college universities like they're getting left behind by these, you know, kind of employer direct educational initiatives. So, I, I mean, overall, do you, I mean, you know, uh, what's your, what's your feeling on higher education's role? What would be the, what would be the first thing you'd do if you were a college president right now, worried about enrollment and thinking about what could I do to, uh, to, you know, to, to increase the financial footing of my institution? Well, I, I think right now there's going to be, it's it, there's going to be a great um, a falling out of of universities that can't move online. I think what we're having right now is that every single you know all universities right now are doing their their instruction online, and so 
you know, um, there were a, a, a large number of consumers that were uncomfortable with that. Rather, they would they did maybe some online, but enrolled. I think 90% of online programs were, you know, within 90 miles of uh, of uh, you know where the brick and mortar university uh, resided, and so. I think that uh, what you're going to see is that more people are going to get comfortable with online learning and that that's going to allow the, the big online powerhouses to scale even faster. And that's going to put enormous pressure on smaller liberal arts college that require a residential college experience. And so I, I, I think it's actually going to make it very difficult to survive as a college if you don't have a, a strong competitive online footprint. Yeah, I agree. And as much as that sounds rather pessimistic as a forecast, right, I think it's the reality. And, you know, look, no one can predict right now whether colleges are going to be able to open up in the fall. If they do, that there won't be some recurring outbreak, right, some ongoing social distancing measures that make being on campus really difficult to do. Uh, so, you know, there's there's the there's the short term impact. But I think the longer term, right, I I actually think there could be some real innovations that come from this. So if, for example, I'm a fairly uh, expensive residential-based uh, private institution and I trade on the value of that on-campus experience, great. Assuming we can get back to some degree of normal, I can continue to do that. But I see a world where institutions will be able to offer differentiated pricing for differentiated experience. So I can get my bachelor's degree online or I can do my bachelor's degree with the precious campus place-based experience. And there's a price differential, right? This one's 20% less than this one and I don't have room and board included. I actually think those are different and distinct marketplaces of students, right? Where there are students who don't wanna make a trade-off in that place-based experience and will continue to yearn for it. And there'll be those who go, hey, if I could get that degree from that institution and do it for 20% less because it's online, I'm all in, right? So, uh, so I'm hopeful that we'll see some of those innovations. But to your point, the question is going to be how fast can those institutions move, right? And uh, and how big a hit are they taking financially in the interim? And how many of them have the ability to survive? So, I, you know, look, I I'm a strong proponent of higher ed in the United States, but I think we're all going to have to be prepared for uh, a number of drastic scenarios here. That said, my my optimistic view is. This is a time for innovation. I can't imagine a better time to, you know, be unshackled by the sacred cows and other cultural norms that have been established in higher ed that, you know, prevented us from thinking about innovative options. So um, I mean, you had you have millions of parents right now that are getting their first taste of their children being in online learning programs. Yeah. And you're like, some of them aren't great. Right. You know, I've, right. Uh, we've 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 seen that. Right. But on the other hand, all of a sudden it's part of the consideration set. And you know there there are pieces of it. I think everyone's looking at this and saying, "Hey, there are pieces of this that actually are effective." And then when you have parents start to say, "You know, maybe we should consider a blended program or you know an online college for you in the in the fall." And I think you know you don't have right. to have a huge swing in in the number of people who will consider it to really change the marketplace. And I think that's what you're going to see. Yeah, yeah, I think so too, John. And I really uh, want to say thank you for for joining for this. And we had scheduled for roughly thirty minutes of chat time. We're we're about at that marker, and uh, grateful for you carving out the time from Chicago today and joining uh, as part of the first live cast. And to the folks who tuned in, I know uh, we had some technical difficulties in the beginning. Uh, we are going to be posting the full uh, session uh, on my LinkedIn page shortly after this. So if you if you missed the beginning, all of it's going to be there. Uh, John, thank you again for, for being part of this and look forward to more conversations in the future with you. 
Well, thank you. This is delightful.